everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Uh, good morning, everyone. Hey, so for the last year and a half or so, I have spent the majority of my time uh, traveling, mostly in North America. I've done some international trips, and I spend a lot of my time nowadays helping organizations lower anxiety in the workplace. That's, I, I go in and I help leaders and teams figure out what's going on in them that's infecting their people, and then what's going on in their people that's infecting them. If you've ever been in a workplace where somebody leaves the house and packs their lunch, but their bad day packs itself with them, you know what that's like? And you're in the workplace, you're having a good time, but this person shows up, they've got their lunch and they've got their bad day. And then their bad day infects your bad day and now everyone's having a bad day. Uh, that's some of the work I do. And um, most of my work, really because I'm a pastor, most of my work is with Christian organizations. By Christian organization, I do not mean that the organization gave their life to Christ. What I mean, of course, is that it's a group of people who are doing kingdom work. And so I have this incredible, really incredible opportunity. I, I don't take it for granted. I can't believe I get to do it where I get a front row seat of what God is doing all over the world and in unusual places. So I just, I've made a quick list from this last year. This is not complete at all. Uh, just recently, I was in Malibu, suffering for the Lord in Malibu, um, at, a Catholic, at a Franciscan Catholic retreat center. Uh, listen, Franciscan Catholic retreat center in the 1940s, the Franciscans bought 200 acres of prime Malibu real estate on the mountainside overlooking the ocean. 200 acres. They paid $50,000 in 1940s. And I drive through this security-gated rich community and wind up the hill to this Franciscan retreat center with these prayer walks, these incredible landscape. The buildings were a little old and funky. And I, look, I don't mean to be a critic but the beds were the size of a freaking nun. I'll just say that, okay? They, the beds were sized for a nun, but amazing. And so there we are in Malibu, and there's the kingdom of God, you know, from decades ago, and people getting to appreciate that. Uh, I met a, a pastor named Muhammad from Kazakhstan. I was not in Kazakhstan. I was in an Asian country where Asian pastors, many of them from persecuted countries, convened together to try to help encourage each other, and I was there to encourage them. 14 Asian countries. I mean, throw me in the briar patch right here. We spent a whole day. I didn't even have to speak. I just got to sit and listen as pastor after pastor came up and represented, here's what God's doing in our country. It was incredible. And so Muhammad from Kazakhstan, I'm just going to give you a brief taste of his story. Muhammad's probably 60 years old, something like that. Muhammad said, well, you know, I, I, when I was a teenager in school, uh, I was poverty stricken. My parents were poor. My grandparents were poor. And I knew I'm going to be poor. So I got to do something about this. I don't want to be poor. I want to be rich, of course. And he said, so I thought, well, if I have any chance of having money, I need to learn English. So he taught himself English. And then not long after communism fell, missionaries poured into Kazakhstan. And his first job as an English speaker was translating for missionary. And he said, I just got to hear the gospel like 20 hours a week. I was sharing the gospel. He was an atheist. There I am sharing the gospel 20 hours a week because I'm a translator, paid translator. He said, the missionaries are incredibly kind to me. I became a Christian. That was several decades ago. Muhammad said, uh, a few years ago I started a seminary and my hope before I die is that I would have five students in my seminary. If I could just have five students 
in my seminary before I die, I'll die at peace. I'll be, I'll be happy. It's like, man. Uh, right here in Colorado, a lady named Julie, she's worked in foster care for years. Some of you actually probably know this lady. And she, she started to realize, man, kids graduate out of the foster care system at 18 with many of them, no one advocating for them, nothing at all, just literally some of these kids, a trash bag of, of clothes. And so Julie created Make-A-Wish for foster care graduates. It's that simple, Make-A-Wish. Once you are 18, Julie steps in. She's like, what do you need? And maybe a kid has a scholarship to college and they need a bike and they need a computer and they need all this stuff so they can navigate college. Julie's like, I'm on it. And she connects churches with foster kids to fulfill their dreams so they can establish in life. This is amazing. Um, a few weeks ago, I was at one of the oldest Christian conferences. This was in Orlando. Thousands of leaders. I had no idea how big this conference was. I, I confess, sometimes I just look at my calendar and get on a plane. I'm not always altogether aware of what I'm going to. This is not, I'm not proud of this. I have this amazing assistant that does all this. And sometimes, honestly, I get to the place I'm like, now, what am I doing? And this was one of the largest, most established conferences in the United States. It's been going over 120 years, and it's specifically for rescue missions. And every executive of every rescue mission in this country convene every year, and they share resources and, and figure out. I got to spend time with like, there's like two and a half thousand rescue mission people. And one of my favorite things is I did a little breakout, and there's Brad from the Denver Rescue Mission sitting on the third row. He's a dear friend of mine. Uh, another one, uh, just, I don't mean to say this pejoratively, let's just say it this way, a generic megachurch, just another boring megachurch in the Midwest. I don't mean that pejoratively, I just mean that sometimes megachurches get a bad rap, but I go and work with this staff and I have to go walk by the largest food pantry I've ever seen to get to the room where we're meeting. Uh, at lunch, I get to meet the registered nurses on staff and the three full-time staff members dedicated to helping families with special needs in their community. That's what I mean by just another generic megachurch. You know, people have this understanding, I hope, I hope you're not like this, uh, where you say megachurch equals bad. That has not been my predominant experience. My predominant experience is megachurch means amazing heart for their city and their community. The discovery, we exist in the shadow of a megachurch, Flatirons Community Church in Lafayette. I don't know if you know what Flatirons do, but they do amazing work in their community. Okay, I'll speed up a little bit because this is probably getting a little boring. Um, Peterborough, England, where 90 churches from all over Europe, you know where the church is dead in Europe? You've heard that. 90 churches from all over Europe uh, learn to gather and grow. Hundreds of leaders fly into Peterborough. And uh, I was on a, a bus. Uh, we, we meet in this convention center, and then we all bus back to the hotel and there was this German woman from Munich. And I said, uh, what do you do? And she said, oh, I'm on the sermon research team for our pastor. I help him plan his sermons. Oh, that's amazing. Tell me about that. She said, well, you know, Munich, Germany, we have a lot of skeptics and they really don't like the gospel. They think the idea that Jesus rose from the dead is just the dumbest thing. They think we're all dumb. So what happens is after our pastor preaches, they will come down front quite hostile like they know better and they're smarter and they like to really take our preacher on. She said, he just hands them off to me and I put them on the sermon research team. I was like, what? You do what? 
She said, well, like they're skeptical. They're obviously in church for a reason. They've got all these objections. I say, great, let's meet Tuesday night. We will study what the preacher's about to talk about next week. I'm going to ask you to study it and bring some of your research, and then we might share some of that with the pastor. Like he might be able to use some of that, and that's how she wins people to Christ. What? Does that even make sense? Okay, uh, two more. I was walking through Manhattan, New York City, Hell's Kitchen, Hell's Kitchen, and that's where I had the the escalator, uh, the elevator was too small, and I had to climb like five flights of tiny stairs up in this office building, like right in the middle of New York City, up this office building, and they let me, they buzz me in, and there's a church, four floors up in an office building, uh, just a gathering of saints that have planted a church and are trying to make a go of it right there in Hell's Kitchen, I love it. And then the final one is right here in Thornton, Colorado. This was just on Friday. This was just this week. I did a workshop for a metal fabrication factory. I get around. Um, 130 employees. The employee of the year gets to drive the company DeLorean. The CEO pulled me aside. He's like, that's, that's been a terrible idea because that thing is so unreliable. Those of you who know sports cars, terrible idea. Uh, 130 employees, so many of them have become Christian. Oh, I forgot to mention this. When you walk into this metal fabrication shop, it feels like you've walked into a church. There's this welcoming lobby, and there's a coffee shop, and there's cornhole. Like it's, it, it feels like you've come home. It's really remarkable. This is just right over the interstate. You know all those big warehouses that you think are all Amazon? This is one of those. This is one of those. And the CEO said, yeah, I've got this problem. I've had so many of my employees become Christians lately. I think I'm going to have to start Bible studies. And I'm just trying to figure out the ethics of a Bible study as the boss in the workplace. Do I make them come? Do I offer? Like, what a great problem. Here's my point, And here's what hopefully we can be encouraged by. The kingdom of God is so much more vast and dispersed than we think. Um, and, and I feel like this is what God's been teaching me this year. I feel like God has been saying to me the last couple of years, just keep looking for the vastness of God's kingdom. Just have a particular eye and try to trip over where God is already doing work and you just get to kind of join in on it. It's like every nook and cranny of this world, there is a follower of Christ furthering the kingdom in some way, sometimes in these big spectacular ways, sometimes in these incredibly mundane behind-the-scenes way. And, and the book of Acts, this series we're in now, in some ways, what the book of Acts is doing, I, I think this is why Luke wrote it, is it's simply inviting the reader, you and I, into the vastness of God's kingdom uh, to try to see that God is at work in ways we never imagined, in, in surprising ways, sometimes quite controversial ways in the book of Acts. A little bit of today is, is about that. God is always doing more than we can see. Can, can we, I know, can we have an amen on that? Like, is that okay? God is always doing more than we can see. Uh, but God is also always in territory we didn't think God would be in. So I'm actually going to encourage you this week to see if you can trip over God's work. Can you stub your toe on what God is doing this week? Can you just be about your life and your business, wherever your context is? This is what I love about the book of Acts. It's not about pastors and professionals. It's about everyday people stubbing their toe on, on what God has already done. And so our story today picks up right after last week. I, man, I love, 
what Zach was teaching us last week about Peter and Cornelius. If you weren't with us last week, our lead pastor, Zach, just had this phenomenal message. I mean, phenomenal message. If you weren't here, I, I hope you'd take time this week to, to, to listen to it, to watch it on YouTube, about Peter, one of Jesus' most precious disciples, stubbing his toe on what God had already done in Cornelius, this Roman military officer. I mean, you talk about somebody that you would not imagine that the God of the Jewish people had gone to. And if you recall that story, God had appeared to Cornelius, the Roman military officer. God then appeared to Peter, and God basically told Peter to violate Peter's own sense of holiness, Peter's most personal and most precious religious values. In, in many ways, the, the things that meant the most to Peter about his relationship with God God just said, forget all that. Like, unbelievable. And perhaps even more unbelievable, Peter then did. I mean, yes, he put up a fight. Peter has one of my favorite phrases in the Bible. No, Lord, an oxymoron if ever I've heard one. And Peter didn't just say no, Lord, in this passage. Peter said no, Lord, a lot, actually. Uh, so Peter says no, but then Peter says yes. And he goes to visit Cornelius only to discover, I mean, I mean, Peter has to cross a number of internal resistances. He has to overcome them and external boundaries. He has to cross a number of internal... He has to, Peter has to test all his assumptions. Maybe that's an overstatement. Many of his assumptions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In order to connect to Cornelius, he knocks on the door only to discover that God's on his second cup of coffee there. Like Peter walks in, he's like, I'm bringing the Lord. Oh, you're, there you are. Isn't this the case? Sometimes some of us who, who we try to orient our whole life about spreading God's word, sometimes we make the terrible mistake of thinking we're bringing God places with us. It's quite funny. Um, I wasn't sure whether to share this. I'll go ahead and share it. Uh, you probably know that the Denver metro area, particularly the northern suburbs, Broomfield County, uh, as you go further north, Boulder County, very unchurched regions in the United States, particularly in the late 90s and the early 2000s when Discovery got planted. We were in the top 10 least church counties in America. Why do you think Discovery showed up? Because Tom and Rachel Morris on base and Tim and Elaine Daly, the first people that planted this church, they saw these numbers, they got the statistics that Broomfield County is one of the least church counties in America, therefore we need church plants. So they uprooted and came here to plant Discovery. This is how we got started. This is how Flatirons Church got started. This is how many church plants in our area got started. But what often happens is some people come from the Midwest, or I'm sorry to be, uh, make a generalization, a lot of people come from Texas, and they expect Texas-sized results here in Broomfield County or, or Boulder County, and it doesn't happen. It's much harder here. Uh, I moved here in 2005 from Las Vegas, and it may surprise you, it is much easier to grow a church in Las Vegas than it is in Colorado. That might surprise you, but people are much more desperate in Las Vegas. Uh, Las Vegas' specialty is we can get you to the end of your rope faster than any other city in the world. And so then at the end of that rope, there's a church with a welcome door and a non-judgmental heart. And that's how you grow a church in Las Vegas. Just get to the end of whatever rope someone's at, have a welcome door and a non-judgmental heart, you'll grow a church in Las Vegas. Uh, whereas Colorado, a bit trickier. People are recreationally minded. They don't want to come to church on a It's a beautiful day. What are you all doing here, right? That kind of thing. 
Uh, a lot of people in Colorado think they're smarter than Christians, they're, they're intellectually stimulated. And so it's hard here. And so, uh, I don't know, it's like 2012, 2013, I went out to my mailbox and there was a flyer in my mailbox. Maybe you've got these flyers too. There was a new church coming, I, I won't say where, just somewhere in the front range. And I wasn't getting the flyer because I'm a pastor. I was getting the flyer because I'm a citizen of the front range. They were just, what's the right word for it? Littering the, the front range with these flyers. And it had the name of the church. And I won't name the church because it's a fine church. And then it said, bringing God to the front range of Denver. That was the tagline. And these people were coming from Texas. I won't say where, but it rhymes with Dallas. <laughs> and so they're coming from Dallas. And um, they were going to plant a church here in the front range, and they were going to bring God with them, bringing God to the front range of Denver. And um, uh, so a couple of us met with the, the young guy. as he, he was coming early to do some preparation meetings, and we sat him down, we took him out to lunch. And we showed him the flyer. And, we, and first of all, we said, look, we, we can tell that you could use a little contextualization because this flyer is really designed to fundraise in Dallas, not reach people in Colorado, because they'll see it and they'll be more worried that you've wasted the environment than that you're bringing God to the front range. So that's first. But secondly, hey, we want you to know some good news. Philip Yancey moved to the front range of Colorado in the 1990s, so God has been here at least since then. Um, but if you'd like to relax, there's too much bringing God, that's too much pressure. What you can do, however, is join the work God's already doing. God's already here. God's been here for some time now. And if you would like to relax from the pressure of bringing God, that sounds like way too much pressure, but instead join the work God is doing, we would love to have you here. And to this young planter's credit, he did that, and they're actually doing very well. The church is doing very well. But I think that's our task, isn't it? Is to spend less effort trying to bring God anywhere and more effort stubbing our toe on God's presence. So I just want you to picture when Peter got into Cornelius' house, he really did think he was bringing God with him. And there's God sitting at Cornelius' table with a second. He's already had a cup of coffee. Like he's already there doing the work. Okay, so this is where our story picks up. But there's a problem. This happens. But now Peter has to go back to Jerusalem, to the leadership, to the authority, and give an account for what he did. And so this is where our story picks up. Acts chapter 11, verse 1. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. I actually really like this. I think uh, this is really wise. Discovery Church, we have an elder board. And this is a group of volunteer men and women and our lead pastor, Zach. And I think it's a very good thing that when we think God is doing something, that we sift it through some kind of authority. I I get very concerned when someone is their own authority on what God is doing. And so this is great. Peter sees the work of God, but then he has to go and, and sift it through an authority. He has to say, here's what God did. And you can tell by the posture of these men, they're suspicious. You went into the house of uncircumcised men and you ate with them? Now, I think Peter must have said, actually, it's much worse than that. I let them into my house first. Uh, Yes, I went into their house, but oh man, they crossed the threshold of my purity house. But Peter then explained everything precisely as it happened. Now, I'm not going to read 
Peter's explanation because it's almost word for word, chapter 10. It's fascinating. Luke, the author of Acts, is not prone to repetition, but occasionally something so astonishing happens, Luke repeats it more than once. So Paul's conversion, Luke repeats three times in the book of Acts. Cornelius's conversion, Luke repeats twice. So this is repetition. Um, but why don't we pick up in verse 17 after Peter has given an account for what happened with him and Cornelius. Like if you were here last week and we read all of that, you'd be like, we just did all that. Yeah. So read that on your own. But this is what, this is Peter's final conclusion, verse 17. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? Peter's like, look, I, I'm, I was on your team just a couple of days ago. I would have been on your council with my arms folded, but I walk in and God's on his second cup of coffee already. What, what am I going to do? I, I, and I'm not going to oppose God. And I love, I love what the governing council, you know, religious leaders get such a bad rap, right? Like, like you re read about these councils and you're like bureaucracy and a good old boys club. But these guys, verse 18, read this. When they heard this, they had no further objections and they praised God saying, so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. He convinced them and it didn't take much at all. In fact, in my notes as I was preparing this message, I just wrote down, wow, that was much easier than I thought it would be. I just thought Peter would over, have to overcome all kinds of resistance. They didn't say, Peter, would you step outside while we talk? They didn't, they didn't say, okay, we're all going to cast a vote. We're going to have these weird colored ping pong balls and red means Jesus said it. And that's a little inside joke just for like three of you. No, they, they just said, okay, Peter, we trust you. We trust that God's at work. Enough weird things have happened lately. We're kind of ready for something weird. And Peter's like, yeah, not only is God in this, God is the primary instigator. God's the troublemaker in all of this. And then the religious leader said, great, then we will adjust our point of view to what God's doing. What a, this is a beautiful posture. So what I, what I just want to point out is Acts is about conversion, but it's about believer, existing believers' conversion as much as it's about non-Christians converting. That, that's what I love about the book of Acts is the Christians are converting as well. And for those of you who have been a follower of Christ for quite a while, I just find this to be such great news that there's more conversion for me to have. I mean, my temptation is to look back on my conversion, which for me was 1985. Uh, that's, old, that's a long time ago. But the book of Acts reminds me, oh, there's probably more converting to do. So yes, non-believers like Cornelius are converting, but yes, Peter is also converting and the other religious leaders are converting. And so I want to just dive into this just for a few minutes because I, I think for those of us who are followers of Christ, and particularly maybe if you were raised in the church, if you were a follower of Christ from some of your earliest memories, I think sometimes Christian conversion is as much about unlearning as it is about learning. Have you noticed that? It's almost like you spend your first formation in the church learning, and then you spend quite a bit of the second formation of your life unlearning. And it, it's weird, isn't it? Because it's not that what you were taught was wrong. 
This isn't one of those messages about, oh, the church in the 70s and 80s, they're all legalists or whatever. No, we're all legalists today too. Believe the good news. We're all, we all struggle with similar things. No, this is a bit more subtle. It's more like, I, I don't know that what they taught me was wrong as much as the meaning I made out of it may have been, may have been wrong. Uh, unlearning is different than deconstruction, by the way. I, I should have drawn a Venn. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Deconstruction is a subset of unlearning. Deconstruction is like, I don't believe that anymore. Deconstruction is removing, just, just demolishing the house. Unlearning is more about replacing than it is removing. I, I'm quite alarmed as, as a pastor how much anxious deconstruction is happening nowadays. People are anxiously deconstructing. And I think we might serve these people better by inviting them instead to the more gentle journey of unlearning. Unlearning. And so one of the ways we unlearn and one of the ways that people in the book of Acts unlearned was they detangled their assumptions from Scripture. They detangled their assumptions from the truth of Scripture. Let me just have, let me tell you one that doesn't matter and then three that matter. Uh, assumptions that we might hold about Scripture where the Scripture hasn't changed. The Scripture is the Word of God. It's the authority. It's the inspired Word of God. But the way we've seen it needs to change. Have you ever had this experience? It's really quite alarming. Okay, let's talk about, this is going to feel like an out of, out of the blue thing, but I promise you it fits. Let's talk about Gideon's fleece. Okay, now, I'm not asking you to tell on yourself, but if you are a follower of Christ and you are familiar with the phrase, I'm going to lay out a fleece. Let me see your hands. I'm going to lay out a fleece. Okay, many of us, those of you looking around, you're like, what are they talking about? Okay, guys, in the Old Testament, there's this guy named Gideon, and God wanted him to do something, and in order to make sure it was God, Gideon laid a fleece out overnight to test God, or to test that it was God's will. Many of you who put your hands up, you know this story. And so I don't quite remember the order, but Gideon basically said, okay, God, I'm going to put out a sheep fleece on the ground. And when I wake up in the morning and the dew falls down, if the fleece is wet and the ground is dry, I will know that you spoke to me. And sure enough, Gideon wakes up and the next morning, he, there's so much moisture in the fleece, he can wring it out. It's like two gallons of water and the, gr the ground is bone dry. It's a miracle. And Gideon then says, you know the story, Gideon's like, hey, God, don't get mad at me. But can we flip it tonight? Like tonight, I'm going to put the fleece back out. And tonight, when I wake up in the morning, if the ground is wet and the fleece is dry, then I'm really going to know it's you, right? And so he wakes up the next morning, and sure enough, um, the, the ground is soaked and the fleece is bone dry. And that's the story of Gideon laying out his fleece. Now, the way we use that story today is whenever we don't know what God wants, which to me, as a follower of Christ, is more often than I care to admit. Now, listen, I know what God wants in a lot of ways in my life. He wants me to love my neighbor. I don't even have to pray about it. It's, it's in the Bible. There's commands. And, but have you ever had this where you're like, God, should I change my job? God, are, are you calling us to move? God, should we have another child? Like these decisions that you are trying to make because you want to honor God with your life and you don't know what God wants. Okay, if you've ever been in that situation where you really want God to tell you what, God, if you would just make it clear. If you've ever been in that situation, I, I've, I live my life in that situation. Uh, what do you want? And here's what we say, right? We say, well, I'll lay out a fleece. That's what we say, right? I don't know what God wants. I'll lay out a fleece. Now, who's tracking with me, right? I know I'm using a lot of arms today. 
yeah, those of you with a, a fitness watch, you could actually set a core workout with all the arm raising I'm doing today. All right, so you get the point, right? I don't know what God wants, so I will lay out a fleece. Are you with me? Okay, check this out. If you go back and read the story of Gideon, Gideon didn't lay out a fleece because he didn't know what God wanted. The reason Gideon laid out a fleece is he knew exactly what God wanted. You go back and read the story, God spoke clearly, loud, audibly. God visited Gideon and he says, Gideon, get a group of guys and go beat up the Midianites, go fight the Midianites. It can't be clearer, it's very clear in scripture. Even now, those of you who know the story, you're like, that is right, that is what God did. And what did Gideon do? Gideon's like, I don't understand what you're saying. What are you saying? What? I can't hear you. God, let me put out a fleece. And God's like, whatever, I right, do it. And then the next morning, the fleece is wet, and, and Gideon, does Gideon rejoice? He says, oh, darn it. Oh, that's the church word for it. <laughs> okay, God, what are you saying? God's like, look, I can't make it any clearer. Get a group of guys, defeat the Midian army, I'm with you, go. I would long to hear God that clearly on some of these. Actually, I, I wouldn't, actually. Sometimes it's very convenient to not hear clearly from God. So, so we use the phrase, lay out a fleece, to mean, I don't know what God wants and I'm trying to figure it out. But get, in the Bible, laying out a fleece means, I know exactly God, what God wants and I don't want to do it. I want to disobey. So be careful how you use fleece laying out language is my point, because what you're telling your friend is, I would like to disobey the Lord. Okay, that would be one example, just one example. This is playful. Listen, if you've ever said lay out a fleece, it doesn't matter. Because your heart means I'm trying to seek the Lord. It's a very good thing. I'm just taking a playful example from Scripture that Scripture teaches one thing, and the Bible has not changed, but the way we read onto it can affect it, right? Infect it. This is the journey of Peter and the, and the Jerusalem council here. Is, is, uh, this is actually what Zach, our pastor, says. He says God was leaving breadcrumbs all through the Old Testament for all this stuff, but the way they read that was a misreading, and they had to unlearn what they'd assumed, and learn what was really in there. Do we want to get a little closer to home? How many of you women, this is not a show of hands, how many of you women have been taught in the church that you have to dress modestly so that a man won't stumble? I'm not asking for a show of hands on this. I don't want, I don't, because this is a shame. Many times the church has shamed women rather than making men take responsibility for our uh, eyes and our ogling ways. We put the burden on a woman, don't show too much skin. Am I showing too much skin? And we call it modesty, right? Now, I'm not here to critique how much skin a woman should show or not show and all of that. Here's all I'm saying is in the Bible, in the Bible, modesty is about wealth, not clothing. Modesty in the Bible is not about how much clothing can a woman wear and be modest. Modesty is about, look, if you're rich, don't flaunt it. Be modest. It's ve- That's because the authors of scriptures know that out of all the boundaries, ethnic boundaries and all of this boundaries, the hardest boundary to cross is the economic boundary, the rich and the poor together in one church. That's hard. And so over and over again, Old Testament and New Testament, when the Bible teaches about modesty, it is saying to the rich, be modest about your wealth for the sake of those who have nothing so that they don't stumble. Did you know that? And go back, you can go do your own study this week. I'd, I'd be happy to get your emails. When I first moved, okay, let's get a little closer to home. When I first moved to America, it was 1992. 
Do you remember 1992? Do you remember who got elected president? I was a Christian. I'd been a Christian like six years or so. And I didn't realize that out of every country in the world, it's the American United States that most aligns their faith with their politics. This is a, a point of syncretism in this country. We worship politics and faith kind of together uncriticized. And Bill Clinton got elected president. Do you remember him? And I had a number of students at the Bible colleges that walk up to me and apologize on behalf of their country that such a terrible person had been elected because in their assumption, the only possible Christian option was a Republican. Uh, for them, the Venn diagram was Christianity and Republicanism was one pure circle. For these, I'm not saying that's you, I'm just saying that was these people. And it was fascinating to me that they just wholesale, uncritically put their political assumptions on, on Scripture. So, sifting assumptions, sifting assumptions, this is the journey of unlearning. And the problem with assumptions is it's hard to know you have them. You often need a community. That's why we do community groups, because we can hear assumptions in other people. It's hard to see them in ourselves. Just on a personal level, and we'll get to the rest of the book of Acts. I think the number one assumption I've been working on in my life for the last seven years is believing what God says about me over what I say about myself. I've recognized that I speak to myself in a way that I would never speak to you. I would never call you stupid. I wouldn't even think it. But I freely call myself stupid or an idiot or a moron. Uh, when God says God loves me particularly, my voice says, no, God actually just loves you generically. And so this would be a very personal example of how I am learning to notice my assumptions that are not true and sift them through the truth of Scripture. And then what I do is I just live by faith. I make it sound much more easy and cheerful than it really is. I simply try to live as if what God says is true over and above what I think. I'm learning. Okay, so our story picks up in verse 19. We'll just read this, and then there's uh, kind of one driving idea, and then, and then we wrap up. Uh, now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church of Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and he saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad, and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Some of you, by the way, who were raised in Sunday school, you went to a class and it was called the Antioch class. That's because of this right here. You were like, why is it called Antioch? We're not in Antioch because of this. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. And the disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help 
for the brothers living in Judea. And this they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. All right, so I'm going to invite the band up to prepare us to worship. And as they do, I'm just going to put a slide on the screen, just the church in Acts. Like so far, 11 chapters in, this is the church. And your homework this week, should you choose to accept it, is just to maybe pick one of these to, to look for this week. You know, looking for God's particular work and joining in, dissolving cultural and religious boundaries to offer a radical welcome, community that supersedes preference and assumption, generosity and tangible help to people in need. Uh, I just put going viral. It's not something we can orchestrate, but that's what the church in Acts did. And then suffering in God's name. Many of us will say, you know, I'm going to pass on that one this week. I'll focus on the rest of it. But it's a good reminder that we live in a world where the majority of the church and much of the world suffers for the sake of Christ. We don't. And we can't manufacture it, but we can remember that and pray for those people and do our part to help. So, as we close, just an invitation, and I just want to leave this invitation to prepare us for worship. This week, can we look for where God has gone ahead of us in people's lives and join God in that work? That's what Peter did with Cornelius. That's what Barnabas did with Saul. God went first and then these followers just looked for where God was already at work and then jumped in. That feels like something all of us can do. So just even as we worship, as we reflect on these songs and as we move into a time of communion, would you just be thinking about what, what could I do? What could my posture be this week where I could look for God already at work? And, and how can I join God in, in that work? Let's sing together.